I don't know about you, but one of the most dreaded things that I could ever be accused of, and when I was growing up and on into adulthood, there was one thing more than almost anything else that I did not want to be called. And I'm sure when I say it that you will probably resonate with it. And that is, nobody wants to be told that they're too sensitive. Right? I mean, that's, that's, a, that's a label that we ascribe to other people and we just know it's going to hurt them. And when we hear it said to us from other people, we tend to think then that something must be wrong with me. Now, the funny thing is, of course, is that we also go to the other extreme and we say, oh, that person's too insensitive. So we're kind of a little bipolar on this. Like, okay, you're not supposed to be sensitive, but you're not supposed to be insensitive. So what is it? Have you ever been called too sensitive? As though that was a bad thing, right? We assume that when we call somebody too sensitive, that it's self-evident that that's a bad thing. What I want to propose to you this morning, I'm going to put my cards out on the table right from the beginning, is that as people who are seeking to become more whole, as people who are seeking to grow up, into the likeness of Jesus, assuming that this morning you're considering that idea, the very thing we actually do want to be is sensitive. Now, of course, there's extremes, right? There's, there's people who you just look at them the wrong way and they break down, right? And, you know, there's, there's things that we could talk about in that regard. But what I want to propose to you this morning is that as we think about our journey to wholeness and recovery. Last week, for those of you who weren't here, there was, I know, a number of people who were gallivanting around the globe and getting warmer weather. We're not, not going to single anyone out. There's those of us who are recovering from illness. But what we talked about last week is that in our journey, in our development, we actually need more than God. God has created us in such a way that we actually need other things and other people other than just himself. I know that that's kind of a scandalous thought, but right there in the Garden of Eden, God looked around at everything he had made, and it was very good, except for, he said, it is not good that man should be alone. So God actually created us with the need to depend not just on himself, but depend on other things and other people. And just as we need food in order to survive, just as we need water to survive, we also need other people. We are fundamentally hardwired for connection. And there's lots of scientific data that demonstrates this. And what I'm going to propose to you this morning, what I'd like to share with you this morning, is that... I'm going to use a big, fancy theological word here at the beginning, and I'll I'll break it down for those of us who may not be familiar with this word. But the word sanctification, which is to say, 
our, our growth and maturity into the image of Jesus. So sanctification, becoming more like Jesus, becoming holier, is, check this out, the process by which we become more and more emotionally safe and available for others. That's, I'm actually going to propose to you two things. That's proposal number one. I want to try to establish this idea now. But I'll repeat it. Sanctification or becoming more holy, becoming more like Jesus, becoming, in, again, theological terms, more righteous is the process by which we become more and more emotionally safe and available for others. Now, perhaps... As I share that this morning, you look at that and you think, oh, hold on, I'm not so sure about that idea. That's, that's, that's not what I've been led to believe as I read Scripture. And don't get me wrong, there's other things involved when it comes to our growth into Christ-likeness. But I would say fundamentally, if we are fundamentally hardwired for connection and relationships and good relationships that it must mean that we must have good connections with other people, right? So let's look at what is known as the Great Commandment. Are you familiar with what is known as the Great Commandment? It's, it's shared in a few different of the Gospels. Actually, three of them have this. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they all share this Great Commandment. And the scene is Jesus is speaking to the religious people. And it's in Matthew chapter 22. And I'm going to be citing this from the New Living Translation. I believe I have a misprint there. It's actually starting in verse 34, not verse 37. But check it out. It says, this is Matthew recording this, but when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, we won't go into all the ins and outs of their relationship, but there was Pharisees and there were Sadducees. These were people who basically had different renditions or different versions of how to do religion. And and generally, it's a very oversimplified model, but the Pharisees were generally considered to be the stuffy, conservative, rigid people. The Sadducees were generally considered to be the more open-minded and the the more liberal people. And they went back and forth at each other. And so it says, when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees with his reply, and we won't go into what came before this, but with his reply, they met together to question him again. They were always looking to try to catch Jesus in something. And one of them, an expert in religious law, tried to trap Jesus with this question. And he asked this question, Teacher, which is the most important commandment in the law of Moses? And so... Jesus brings this response. He replied, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind. Now I want to pause right there for a second. Actually, he goes on to say, this is the first and the greatest commandment. Notice what Jesus focuses on here. He focuses on the heart on the soul and the mind. And other versions actually add as well, and strength. But Jesus focuses on the very inner workings of the human experience, doesn't he? The heart. This was, of course, a very uh, biblical idea because all throughout Scripture we see such incredible exposition on the heart. 
And of course, it's not talking about the heart as this physiological organ that pumps blood. It's talking about the heart in the biblical idea as the seat of the emotional life. That's what it is in the biblical sense. So Jesus is here saying, you need to experience the fullness of your emotional life. You need to love God with the fullness of your emotional being. Now he goes on to say as well, and with your soul. Now in in the original language of the writing of scripture, this word for soul, it's very fascinating. This word for soul is the word suhe. From whence we get the word psyche. So Jesus, again, he's talking about the emotional life, and he's saying also the psychological life. What Jesus is primarily interested in and focused on is us giving him our all when it comes to our emotional, psychological, spiritual experience. And of course, he goes on to say your mind as well. And even this, actually, in the Hebrew understanding, they actually, in Hebrew, for example, the, the, the language of the Old Testament, they actually don't have a word for mind. And so this is actually more than just this intellectual experience that we have. It has, a again, a more total, holistic idea in mind. Now, many of us, perhaps, if we are familiar with this verse, we, we tend to focus on that mind part. and We think, oh, we need to have the right information in our brains. And don't get me wrong, that's important. But what Jesus has is a holistic view in mind. Now, he goes on to say, this is the first and greatest commandment, and he says, a second is equally important. And that, notice what he says. You are to love your neighbor as yourself. The entire law and all the demands of the prophets are based on these two commandments. Now, what I'm, what I'm proposing to you this morning, as I said, was that if we are to experience the great commandment, the, to love the Lord our gods with all of our beings, including especially our emotional, psychological experience, and we are to love our neighbors as ourself, that means that we need to grow emotionally in order to adequately love others as ourselves. Now, let me pause here for a second as well. Just a side note. I remember hearing a lot of people talk about the importance of if you are to love others as you love yourself, it must mean that you need to also love yourself. And I have to admit to you that when I used to hear that, I used to think, oh, that makes me feel uncomfortable. That seems kind of arrogant or narcissistic or self-centered. And I think, no, 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 we don't need to, Jesus is not telling us to love ourselves. But sometimes you and I do get so caught up in trying to love other people that we don't realize that there's an important place to also engage in what is called self-care. And sometimes I act with greater kindness towards other people than I act with kindness towards myself. And there is a place, there is a very important place, and we could talk about this and I could share more data with you on this, but there's a very important place for having a healthy level of self-respect and realizing that we should not devalue 
what God has declared and demonstrated to be of infinite value, which is to say ourselves. I don't know about you, but I say things to myself that I would never say to anybody else. I am critical of myself in a way that is not critical of other people. And I cannot learn to love other and respect other people if I do not have a healthy level of self-respect and self-appreciation, okay? So again, we'll probably talk a little bit more about that in the future, but I just wanted to lay that in here for a moment. But all this is to say is that if we are going to adequately love other people as, as we love ourselves, we are going to, to recognize that what people are looking for more than anything else is acceptance and connection and value. And I would submit to you, I would submit to you that what they're looking for from us is safety and availability emotionally. Now, you might be sitting here and thinking to yourself, well, this is kind of wishy-washy. This is kind of, you know, maybe, maybe this is belongs in the self-help section of the you know, bookstore. But maybe not. I come for, you know, a strong biblical, you know, exposition when I come to listen to a sermon. And I'm going to tell you, this is about as deep as you can get, even biblically. I came across, interestingly, uh, some interesting data. By the way, uh, and I won't go through all of it, there's limited time, but what, people, what, what, what uh, research has, has discovered that the most important thing for a person's health is good relationships. You can, be, you can eat all the right things. You can exercise you know, a thousand hours a day. You can do all those things. You can sleep. But if you don't have good relationships, your health is not probably going to be that good. Notice what uh, Basil van der Kolk, he is a neuroscientist, a, a medical doctor. He says, as far as our mental, emotional well-being, being able to feel safe with other people is probably the single most important aspect of mental health. Being able to feel safe with other people. He goes on to say, safe connections are fundamental to meaningful and satisfying lives. Again, they did research. They actually did a longitudinal study. I said I wasn't going to go into it, but I, I am. They went, did a longitudinal study of, of sophomores at Harvard University in like 1948. They followed them for 70 years, and they said the biggest predictor of good health at 70 was good relationships at 50. Very fascinating. So good, safe connections are fundamental to meaningful and satisfying lives. He goes on to say, social, social support is not the same as merely being in the presence of others. The critical issue is reciprocity, being truly heard and seen by the people around us, feeling that we are held in someone else's mind and heart. For our physiology to calm down, heal, and grow, we need a visceral feeling of safety. No doctor can write a prescription for friendship and love. And then he goes on to say, social support is a biological necessity, not an option. And he, this is from a book called The Body Keeps the Score. The, the experiences that we've had have actually make a biological, physiological imprint on our being. And so they show up whether we realize it or not. Now, as I was 
researching this whole concept and I started formulating this idea, I came across a, I'm just casually reading one day from this little book called Thoughts from the Mount of Blessing. And if any of you have ever read this book, it's by a woman named, by the name of Ellen White. And I sat up in my chair because I said, man, this woman who wrote 120 years ago, she knew this ahead of time. She knew this before this whole emotional revelation started, you know, the revolution started. Check out what she said. And I said, man, how did she know this? She says, in your association with others, what are you to do? Put yourself in their place. What, What would we call that? We'd call that sympathy or empathy. Actually, the word empathy was not actually invented until about 1920, I came to discover. So she didn't have that word in her arsenal at that time. But she says, put yourself in their place. Check this out. Enter their what? Feelings. Enter their feelings. Their difficulties. Their disappointments their joys, and their sorrows. Notice what she goes on to say. Identify yourself with what? With them. Again, what do we call that? Empathy, sympathy. And identify yourself with them and and then do to them as were you to exchange places with them, you would wish them to deal with you. Now check this out. She says, this is the true rule of honesty. It is another expression of the law. What does she say? Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. I already came up with this idea, and then I read it in her. I'm like, wow, I'm not the only person thinking these things. Now notice what she also goes on to say. And it is, check this out, the substance of the teaching of the prophets. So what she's saying, in other words, is if you go through Scripture, you go through the prophets, you go through the Old Testament, you read Isaiah, you read Jeremiah, you you hear the message of John the Baptist, this is actually what they're getting at, is emotional safety and availability. So that when people come to you, they know that they are going to be received with kindness and openness, and grace. Because that's the only thing that can bring healing to the human heart. She goes on to say, it is a principle of heaven, and it will be developed in all who are fitted for its holy companionship. In other words, that's another way of saying sanctification. That's what will happen as we become sanctified. We will grow in our emotional availability and sympathy for, and safety with others. She goes on to say, no man who has the true ideal of what constitutes a perfect character will fail to manifest the sympathy and tenderness of Christ. The influence of grace is to soften the heart, to refine and purify the feelings, giving a heaven-born delicacy and a sense of propriety. So, Proposal number one, our growth in Christ-likeness, our sanctification is the process by which we become more and more emotionally available, safe, safe and available for others. And then proposal number two, and I'm going to just dwell on this very briefly because this is setting up for the rest of the teaching series. Proposal number two, you and I can become emotionally safe and available to others 
only to the degree that we are aware of our own story. Let me say that again. You and I can become emotionally safe and available for others only to the degree that we are aware of our own story. Which is to say that in order to become emotionally safe and available, to be sympathetic and empathic for others, we have to be in touch with what's going on inside of ourselves. That sounds kind of crazy, maybe. But it doesn't take much thinking to realize that if I don't know how it, if I don't, if I haven't really processed how it feels to be rejected, to be abandoned, I'm not going to be able to identify with somebody else who comes to me and says, I feel rejected and abandoned, right? That's pretty simple. And again, science understands this. This is a therapist from Colorado who gives a summary of what neuroscience has discovered. Neuroscience over the past decade, his name is Adam Young. He has a podcast called The Place We Find Ourselves. Very, very good, but very heavy and deep. I know I've recommended some of you, and you've said, whoa, I feel like I'm jumping into the deep end there. But neuroscience over the past decade has shown that people who know themselves people who have a heightened capacity for and commitment to self-reflection have much more empathy than others. He goes on to say, again, this is a summary. I, 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 he didn't cite specific science, but I reached out to him and he said, yeah, I don't have the data with me right now, but I, I went ahead and did my own Googling. It's really amazing what Google can do. And I came across these few studies that does demonstrate this. What neuroscience has shown is that you cannot engage well with others. You cannot love others well. You cannot empathize with other people well until you have addressed the wounded parts in your heart as a result of your story. People with a high capacity for and practice of self-reflection reflecting on how they are in the world and how they have come to be who they are in the world, these people have an increased ability to empathize with others. So, in other words, if you want to love other people well, if you want to be other-centered, you need to practice reflecting on your story, which is to say, your brain, your heart. Now, it's at this time where you say in your mind, self is Pastor Brace telling me that I need to go to therapy? Yes. <laughs> and it's at this point where I say, absolutely, astoundingly, yes. You need more than God. All of us need therapy on some level and some degree or the other. All of us. And you think, well, that's okay. I have, you know, my spouse. Praise the Lord if you have a good spouse you can process these things with. You probably need more than your spouse as well. I need more than my spouse. The reality is all of us have wounds. All of us have traumas. All of us have ways in which we have been acted upon by other human beings that were dysfunctional in 
their behavior. And what we're noticing is that we can't just ignore it because it's going to show up somehow, some way. And we can't just pray it away. Now, God can some, you know, God oftentimes neutralizes in his mercy some of those things. But ultimately what he wants us to do is to process them, not ignore them. Because here's why. It makes us much more well-rounded people when we process them anyway. And it allows us to have that emotional availability for other people. So, this morning, I am going to take a risk. And I'm going to pass out a piece of paper. And I'm going to invite you, as you go home, to do some homework. And I'm going to probably do that each week we have these uh, this teaching series. And I have 26 questions. How many? 26 questions. I tried to go with 25, but I threw in an extra one for no cost, okay? And this is what I call an emotional safety and availability self-assessment. And um, I will freely admit that I made it up myself. So I don't have a degree in psychology. I don't have a degree in counseling. This was me as a human being say, what is it that makes other people make me feel safe? And what are the things that I do that I know make other people not feel safe around me? So I, my, my good friend Jim looked, at, looked them over before, and not to say that he said they're perfect or anything like that, but... Um, this is, this, and he asked me, what do I hope to accomplish by this? Well, as I sat around our table this morning, at the very least, help us move from pre-contemplation, which is to say, ah, we're kind of oblivious that we need to do any emotional work, to, you know, maybe there's some need for growth in my life. And then that last question of our prayer time, who will you ask for help? You read it and you say, whoa, I'm like an abject failure emotionally. Reach out to somebody you know who has maybe a little more experience down the road than you emotionally. Now, if you want to take a huge risk, ask two or three other people to go down the list with you, maybe with your spouse and say, <laughs> this is what I have seen in my own heart. What do you think? And you talk about like a decade worth of conversations. So uh, maybe reach out to your spouse and say, what do you see in my heart? What do you see in my actions? Maybe find a close friend, two or three, not just one. I mean, of course, that's a big ask. But what I hope that we, by God's grace, would be able to see that even the most mature of us emotionally are not perfect. I don't think. Right? So even the most advanced of us emotionally, we 
have plenty of work to do. All right? So I'm going to pass that out. Actually, I'm just going to do it right now. Take some, pass them around. We don't have time to go through them. Let me keep one. We don't have time to go through them together. Actually, there's only 30 of them. I underestimated for some reason. I wasn't thinking correctly. Maybe one per family, one per couple. Um, But yeah, prayerfully look at them. Ask God to show you in your own heart where you need growth. And and then you'll say, I never want to go back there again. I just want to hear a nice little biblical thought and eat lunch and be on my way.